0: copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, this morning. Matthew 21, our text will be verses 1 through 22. Before we read the text, I want to ask you, what's your greatest need? Think about the greatest need in your life. What is it? What What would be the common answer today for the greatest need in our lives? Would it be more finances? a common answer that if we ask people out on the street what's your greatest need would it be better health would it be greater family Uh, a a closer family Uh, there are many ways that people might choose to answer this question what is our greatest need but this morning I, i want us to see what jesus says and what god's word says about what our greatest need is in fact i think we'll see in this text that Jesus is saying that our greatest need is to be at peace with God. That is our truly our greatest need. I don't know about you, but even this morning as we were walking through our time of confession and prayer, I was overwhelmed with the sense in the wake of my own sin. Whenever I think about coming into God's presence and just about how sinful I am as a human being, as a man, Each of us, we can't escape this reality that that all of us are sinful. In fact, Scripture says that none of us are good, not even one, that we all have sinned, and because of that sin, we have offended the holiness of God. In fact, that even since we have offended God's holiness, we have sinned against Him, that we are actually deserving of the wrath of God, His condemnation upon us. So I would submit to you this morning that our greatest need isn't family, it isn't money, it isn't friends. Our greatest need, our first and primary need, is to be at peace with God. And Jesus Christ himself makes a way for us to be at peace with God. In fact, Jesus came to grant mankind peace with God. And so as we uh, look at this text this morning, beginning in verse one. Uh, I want to read, but let me let me pray for us first. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are coming, desiring to open your word, and Lord, to see the truth of your word. And so I pray, God, that you would show us how Christ has come to make us at peace with you. So, Father, we ask. This morning, that you would speak into our lives, conform our hearts to your will and your word, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts to love the truth of your word. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on the colt, and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared graves? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, have peace with God. At the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, pilgrims were were drawing near to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. People were coming from all over the region, flocking to Jerusalem so that they could celebrate this time of Israel's um, feasting and festival. This was a time when the Messianic hope and fulfillment of of Christ the Messiah, it it, it ran high. And on a national scale, people were, were ready and were looking for the Messiah. In fact, the people of Israel had been waiting for the Davidic king who would rule and who would restore the nation to its rightful place. So they had been waiting for God to send the Messiah who in their minds would save their nation. Would overthrow the political system of the day, would overthrow Rome, and would reestablish the right kingly rule over Jerusalem. The people of Israel thought their greatest need was political restoration as a nation. But you see, what they really needed was peace with God. And so Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is about announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And it's about announcing the peace that Jesus makes between God and man. And so first, I want us to see this. First, King Jesus demonstrates the nature of his kingship in verses 1 through 11. Jesus' king. His kingship and his kingdom are not as the world would expect it to be. In fact, this section of the Synoptic Gospels begins what's known as the Passion Week, the Holy Week. It begins what's known for Christ, that passion means suffering. It begins the suffering of Christ. He is the the suffering servant who is headed to the cross to lay down his life in order to accomplish peace, to bring peace of God to mankind. So as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds through chapter 28, we see this, portrait of the suffering servant. And the point of King, King Jesus' kingship, it isn't to work, to have world domination or to, 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 to overthrow the political system of the day. The point of his kingship was spiritual domination over the power, the perverse power of sin. That's why in Matthew nine twelve, Jesus had said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I came not to call righteous, but to call sinners. So as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, Jesus is embracing his destiny. He is embracing the cross, that which he is headed toward. So he deliberately acts to display the nature of his kingship. He sends two of his disciples out into the next village ahead of him. And what are they going to do? They're going to secure a colt, an animal, a donkey. In fact, Matthew's the only one that gives us this distinction that they secured two, and they brought the mom and the foal of the mom, the young colt. They brought both back to Jesus. So we read in verses 4 and 5, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fold of the beast of burden. We read in verse 7 where it says, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. There's been a lot of discussion about, well, how did Jesus ride two, two donkeys? But that's not the point here. The point was Jesus was sitting on the cloaks that they had put on the young donkey. On the colt. Jesus is riding on the colt as he's entering into Jerusalem. And I want you to see that he does this for two very significant and specific reasons. The first reason he does it is so that all who have eyes can see that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy about Messiah, how he would come. But the second reason that he does is because his kingship is, a, is about establishing peace with God. Notice how he enters the city. Notice what verse 5 says. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, right, humble, and mounted on a donkey. What, what king, what warrior king would ever come riding into the capital city of his nation? especially on the foal, a a, a young baby donkey, the foal of a donkey. No, No warrior king would do such a thing. And so I want you to see that Jesus is making a specific claim by bringing this donkey and riding this donkey into the city. And that specific claim is his kingship is different. His kingdom is different than any kingdom of the world. It is a kingdom of peace. In fact, it's set in contrast with what Zechariah 9.9 9 and 9.10 says. Zechariah 9.9 9 and 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And listen to verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus is riding on the colt, and it's in contrast to the war horse. It's in contrast to the chariot. His kingship doesn't mean, then, the absence of war. Instead, Jesus' kingship does one thing. It establishes peace between God and humanity. Matthew says, he rides in on a beast of burden. And this beast of burden that Jesus rides in on, get this, the beast of burden is carrying the creator of all creation, the the one who has created the cosmos. This beast of burden is carrying the load of the king of creation on his back. And on top of that, he's carrying the burden of the world's weight of sin. So this... The burden is carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. And as the scene unfolds, the crowds are growing in their enthusiasm. And so I want you to know this, this scene was a tremendous scene. It was one of great worship. People were gathered around the road. They're, picture it in your mind. There are people descending from the Mount of Jerusalem, coming through the Kidron Valley, coming up to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is coming down. And there are also Galileans who are And so there's there's a crowd of people behind him, and there's a crowd of people coming out to him. And all of these people, as they're crowding and coming to him, flocking to Jesus, they are shouting, they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These shouts, these these titles of worship, this acclamation that they they are laying tribute before Christ. These shouts are messianic declarations. Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, as we sung earlier, it means save us now, we pray. Save us, O God. It is a plea to God to deliver. And so they are praying, deliver us. They were crying for deliverance and they were exalting Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that they are declaring Jesus is the one who is representing God and he has come to carry out God's purposes in this world. When they say Hosanna in the highest, they're quoting from from the Psalms 148, where the children of Israel would, would cry out and sing these songs in declaration and praise to God. And they're meaning to say that Jesus is to be praised everywhere on earth, even in heaven. And so what are the crowds doing? They're cutting branches down and they're putting them in the road, right? And they're taking off their cloaks and they're laying them on the road, and as Jesus on the donkey passes the cloaks, they pick up their cloaks and they run and they put them down in front of him again. So he's got this, this, in essence, red carpet going right into Jerusalem. So what's the problem with the scene? There's no problem with the scene, right? I mean, the, these people are flocking around Jesus and they're worshiping him. But the problem with the scene is this, they They were taken away by the hopes of messianic fulfillment during this festival week. They were celebrating and remembering God's victorious deliverance of their ancestors as he brought them out of Egypt and delivered them from bondage. And as I alluded to a moment ago, they thought that the Messiah would usher in this military might and overturn the government of the day. But their greatest need wasn't deliverance from bondage or foreign oppression. Their greatest need was the same as ours today. They needed to see Jesus for who he was and not who they wanted him to be. They needed to see Jesus for the Savior, the King of Peace that he had come to be and the the peace that he had come to restore between God and man, the one who would make atonement and satisfy God's wrath against their sin. They needed to see this Jesus they weren't open to seeing who Jesus was claiming to be. Their greatest need was to be at peace with God. So the question I have for us this morning is how do we have peace with God? The spiritual reality we need to see this morning is the same one the crowds needed to see on this great day, this Palm Sunday. And that is this, our lives must be shaped by the terms of Christ's kingship not our own terms. In other words, we can't come to Christ based upon who we think he is or who we want him to be. No, we come to Christ based upon who he has revealed himself to be, based upon what he has done to deliver us from sin and from bondage. I'm convinced that many people today, they want a Savior, one who will save them from But they don't want a Savior who will keep them from walking in their sin. They want to have their cake, right, and eat it too. Jesus says, if we're going to have peace with God, then we must come through him. And this passage is showing us that Jesus is coming, declaring who he is, announcing his kingship is one of peace. I want you to hear this morning, this is the first and primary truth that we have to wrestle with if we're going to be at peace with God. Because in Jesus Christ, God has brought forth his eternal plan of redemption. God has dealt with our sin by pouring out his wrath against Christ so that we might, by faith, come to a place of repentance of our sin and confessing our need for Christ to deliver us From our sin. So this happens through the work of the cross. Jesus Christ, he has turned his face to the cross. And King Jesus is heading into Jerusalem to embrace this passion, this suffering on the cross. And he does this so that you and I, we, might have peace with God. I'm a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. One of my favorite quotes in the whole series series comes from um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this dialogue, Lucy is having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Miss Beaver says to Lucy, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy says, Then he isn't safe. Safe. Said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about Safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. I want you to hear this morning that, brothers and sisters, our greatest need is to be at peace with this God. and his kingship as he has come and made a way for us to be at peace with this just, holy righteous, good wrathful God so Jesus calls us first to submit our lives to his rule he is the promised Messiah he is the savior of all secondly this morning I want you to see about King Jesus I want you to see that King Jesus removes obstacles to worship. He removes obstacles to worship. In verses 12 through 17, we see this. The place of the outer court was known as the court of the Gentiles. And in verse 12, Jesus enters into the temple and he begins to do something. He begins to drive out all those people who are gathered there at the court. And their activity is not about worshiping God. That's just a veil or what they're really doing. Their greatest desire is to make a profit. And so they're there ripping people off. They're, they're robbing people. And so Jesus enters into this court. It is the court of the Gentiles. Now here's what we need to know about the court of the Gentiles. It's the most outer court of the temple. And it's the only place that someone who is not a Jew can come to worship God. And so all non-Jews who wished to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, were able to enter into the outer court, but they couldn't go any further. In fact, there were signs that were posted at the the edge of the outer court before you go into the inner court that were written in Greek and in Latin warning any non-Jew, any Gentile, that they could not go any further into the temple. And so it was the outer court where these merchants, from charging exorbitant exchange rates and robbing the people they were hindering get this, they were hindering the nations from worshipping God they were actually doing the opposite of what God had called them to do as a people to be a light to all nations to represent him to all nations and so Jesus comes in and he says my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers comes into the temple with authority and he, he challenges their false religion. He challenges their worshiping money and not worshiping God. And I want you to see this. When our focus is no longer on God as the center of our worship, we lose sight of his mission through our lives. That's what happened for the children of Israel when their focus left God as the center of their worship. They lost sight of God's mission through them. And so Jesus reminds us of his mission in verse 14, where the blind and the lame follow Jesus into the temple. And when they follow into the temple, Matthew just makes this simple statement. It says, and he healed them. The blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple. They come to the one who is Lord over all things. And Jesus speaks into their life, touches them, and brings healing upon them. And in verses 15 and 16, even the children know that how to respond to Jesus and the action that he has taken. They cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And listen, Jesus' response to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, he, he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus responds to their indignant cry against him. And he offers us a picture of childlike faith that isn't afraid to cry out and to praise his divine presence, to praise him for who he is. And so in, in Jesus, the prophecy of Haggai 2.9 has its fulfillment. The prophecy which says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give Peace declares the Lord of hosts. You see, Jesus comes into the temple, and here's what he does He removes all the obstacles that are there, hindering his people from worshiping him. William Temple gave the definition of worship. He said this He said, For worship is the submission of all our nature to God, it is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for all that self-centeredness, which is our original sin, and the source of all actual So let me ask you, how do we have peace with God? Here's how. Remove the obstacles from our lives that hinder us from worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what what are the obstacles that hinder us from worshiping God? What are the obstacles hindering you, even this morning, from worshiping God? Is it a particular sin in your life that's, that's gripped you and that you're hanging on to? Is it selfishness? Is it, is it money? Is it is it your children? Do we prioritize worshiping God in our lives? Do we prioritize worshiping with God's people above all else? Parents, are, are we telling and teaching our children that God is the priority of, of our lives? When we substitute other things in place of gathering with God's people for worship, what are we actually communicating, parents, to our, our children? Believer, is it it your hobbies? Are your hobbies obstacles in your worshiping God? Is it your entertainment that's an obstacle in worshiping God? What are the obstacles that keep us from worshiping God this morning? Is it that you're, you're not ready to repent of sin and confess Him as Lord? What are the obstacles that keep us from engaging God's mission of bringing the gospel to the nations? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, right? He says, as you go, make disciples of all nations. Is it complacency? Is it a a lack of knowing God's word in our lives that that keeps us from engaging God's mission and bringing the gospel to the nations? Is it self-dependence? Is it love of self rather than love of God? You might be surprised to know that there are approximately 6,000 people groups around the world who are considered unreached or unengaged people. And what that means is 2% of that particular people group, 2% or less, do not have a gospel witness. Less than 2% of those people are actually converted and believe in. The other 98% of the people have no idea. It's not that they've heard and rejected. That's not it. They, They simply have no access to the gospel of Christ. Listen, church, the good news of the gospel beckons us to worship God. Beckons us to be the light of the gospel to the nations. And so I want you to think about this. We are all worshipers. The issue isn't are we worshiping? The issue is, what are we worshiping? I want to challenge us this morning. How do we have peace with God? We have peace with God by removing the obstacles from our lives that hinder us from worshiping him. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to come before God and to worship him. Christ. Has suffered the cup of God's wrath, and he has restored peace between God and man so that we can be at peace with God. Third truth I, I want us to see about King Jesus this morning is this King Jesus warns, he warns against fruitless faith. And we see this in verses 18 through 22. About fig trees, that the fruit appears before the leaves appear. Did you know that? So if you have a fig tree, notice this year, maybe already noticed that the fruit has begun appearing, the leaves haven't yet appeared. That's what happens on on fig trees. That kind of helps us to understand what's happening in verses 18 and 19. Is the morning comes and Jesus is returning to Jerusalem and he was hungry. And so he saw the fig tree by the wayside, right, in verse 19, and then he went over to the fig tree, and he found no figs on it. What had happened? He had saw the fig tree from a distance, and he saw the green leaves on the fig tree. And he said, this tree has leaves, therefore it has fruit. It has all the appearance of having fruit. So Jesus wanted fruit. In fact, he wanted fruit from that thing which was created to provide fruit. But when he got to it, it was fruitless. See, the tree had all the signs of fruit, but it was bare. So Jesus cursed the fig tree, and he said, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Why does Jesus do that? Well, he's acting out a parable. And this parable is being acted out in connection with temple worship with God's people. God's people were concerned with external adornments of religion, just like the fruitless tree, filled with all of its green leaves. But get this, get this, their lives were fruitless. See, those who profess to be God's people but live fruitless lives are warned. So I exhort us this morning, don't be like the fruitless don't let empty adornment of religion leave you dry and desperate instead come before Jesus come before God repent of sin remove the obstacles out of our lives and let us worship him because empty religion will never satisfy the spiritual hunger of our souls so Jesus answered the disciples' questions by calling them to live fruit-bearing lives, fruit-bearing lives of faith. So not only is Jesus king over creation as he curses the fig tree and it withers, we see that Jesus is also king over their lives and king over our lives. Look in verses 21 and 22. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And listen to this and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have. us and to illustrate for us a spiritual reality. Faith in God moves mountains. A prayer of faith in God will move mountains. The point is, if we have faith in God, then we'll receive what we ask, even when something seems too difficult, humanly speaking. God can move mountains, is what Jesus is saying, and when we come to him in prayer, by faith He does this tremendous work. What seems impossible to us is possible with God in prayer. But I want you to see, while this promise is certainly for the individual in prayer, it's directed to the community of disciples. It was the community of disciples that he's speaking to, and this challenge is to the church today. You see, prayer, church, it, it isn't a fruitless exercise. It's a true crying out to God for His glory to be displayed in the world. And God wants to be made much of and He wants to use us to display His glory in the midst of His creation. So here's the question. How do we have peace with God? We have peace with God, listen, by by crying out to Him in faith for a believing prayer life Makes for a fruitful faith life. That's what Jesus is teaching the disciples. And that's what we need to learn. A believing over it or around it. I don't know how to get past it, but you do.
1: And how many of us,
0: when's the last time we've come to God by faith and prayer saying, God, I trust you. I need you to do this. I can't do it. You've got to do it. Listen, God desires that we come to him and we ask him to move those mountains. God desires that we come to him in faith and, and be men and women, believers, a church that is Praying by faith. When's the last time that we've been in prayer of the salvation of lost friends or, 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 or spouse or, or a child? Or, are, we, are we asking God to, to move those mountains? How about the gospel going to the nations? Our, our financial provision in a matter are we are we asking for God to move those mountains? Or are we just hoping that God's going to take care of it? Listen, church, let me challenge us that we must be a people of prayer. A people who come to God by faith. A people who are not afraid to come to God in prayer, asking by faith that he will make his glory known and that he will work in the midst of the circumstance, whatever the situation is. How do we have peace with God? Here's how. We come to Christ on must come to him knowing that he is the one who has made a way for us to come into God's presence. He is the king of peace who has granted peace for all who believe in him and by faith repent of sin, confess that he is Lord, and surrender their lives to following his kingship. Secondly, we have peace with God when we remove obstacles in our lives that are keeping us and hindering us from worshiping him. We will not have the peace of Christ in our daily lives, believer, if we are harboring sin in our life. If we are, if we are not turning from our sin, as Pastor Drew spoke of earlier, and believing upon Christ, confessing that sin to him. We must cry out to God, thirdly. We must come to him in prayer. We must cry out to God that, that he has the power to work in the midst of our circumstances and come to him by faith, trusting in him. morning if you've never come to Christ on his terms. I want you to know that you can come now. You can come to him by confessing that he is Lord, by repenting of your sin and believing in the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that which we see in this text. He's turning his face toward. By confessing sin, repenting of it, and trusting Jesus as Lord, you too can be at peace with God. And it begins with And then it's followed up by a walk of faith that bears fruit in one's life. You see, Christ transforms us. And he doesn't just transform us so that we can have eternal salvation. He transforms us so that we might be the light of the gospel to the nations. So this morning, let me encourage us, church. Let us live lives of faith that bear fruit for our glorious God. Let us leave this place this morning celebrating the triumphant entrance of Christ into Jerusalem because what we will celebrate next week is his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and he has given us eternal life and the hope of eternal salvation. Christ has made a way for us to have peace with God so that we are not suffering under the wrath of God. We are beneficiaries of the blessings and the covenant of God. God is gracious. So this morning, let me encourage you church, cry out to him in repentance let me encourage you church, to walk in the joy of salvation let us live faithfully let us cry out to God with a prayer of faith, trusting and believing that he is the one who can move mountains, who can do all things so this morning I want to close us in prayer and I want to invite you to respond tell the Lord, rejoice Rejoice in God and what he's doing in your life. Confess those things to him that you need to confess. Repent of them. And then walk in the joy and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. And you respond as the Lord needs. Father, this morning, we thank you for the goodness of Christ our Savior. We thank you that Jesus has made a way for us to have thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not of our own doing, but it is because of the triumphant word of Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, this morning, as we consider how we have peace with you, we thank you for, for Christ and his sacrifice, and we we pray, God, that you would remove the obstacles out of our life, and, and, Lord, that we would be able to come to you by faith and prayer and trust in your goodness. For it's in Christ's